Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ivan Malat, convicted of murdering seven backpackers in the Balangalo State Forest. But what if he didn't act alone? The exclusive new evidence that could change everything you thought you knew about Australia's most infamous serial killer. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions, with Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to another big week of Monsters Who Murder. Amanda, the reaction we have had to episode one, it has been phenomenal. It's been great. We've had a lot of comments and we've had a lot of love, so that's always a good place to begin. There was a little bit of negativity, but oh, not we don't too give much. Them we don't give them anything. <laughs> but on the whole, um, we are really appreciative for the comments that have come through and what people have said. A couple of housekeeping bits and pieces before we move on to the news items of the week. And then, of course, this week's case is Ivan Milat. But um, we are updating the website constantly with the latest news in serial killings. And I, I have to say, Amanda... I did not realise there was so much happening in the world of serial killers. Welcome to my nightmare, Robert. <laughs> or, your, or your happiness, I don't know. I don't know, no, it's, it's pretty dark, but yes, um, once you set up that Google alert, you realise how often it goes off, and it's yeah. quite, quite scary. It is, it is, indeed. Um, but one of the things I'd love everyone to do is go and follow us on social and the website, and our good mate Phil has the details of where you can go to do that. Go to monsterswhomurder.com and you can find us on social media by searching MWM Confessions. I do find it sounds more professional if Phil gives the details. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's get into our news headlines of the week and we begin with breaking news out of the United States. Here's CBC News. Well, we're following that breaking news story for you out of Texas this hour. Police have confirmed there are multiple casualties at a local high school in Santa Fe, which is south of Houston. CBC's Megan Roberts is tracking the story for us. So, Megan, what is the latest? We did just hear from the sheriff of that county confirming that between 8 and 10 people are dead as a result of this shooting. He could not even confirm the exact number because there's still very much an investigation going on at the school you're looking at right there. That is Santa Fe High School. So between eight and ten people are dead. The sheriff says this includes both students and, and adult staff. There are other injuries. We don't know how many, but we do know that a police officer, a male police officer, has been injured. We also learned more about the suspects in this case from the sheriff who just spoke. He says that there is one suspect believed to be a male student who is in custody and there is a second person of interest also believed to be a male student who is being questioned right now. A teacher was telling us to go, go, go. And then, you know, it's like instinct. You're scared, you're traumatized, so you're running as fast as you can. We jumped the fence on some dude's house and then we ran to the car wash and then we were sitting there trying to figure out everything that's going on. And uh, I saw some girl, she had a, you know, she got shot in the kneecap, I guess, and she had a bandage around it. She was limping and then firemen came and got her later. And I didn't know what to think. I shouldn't be going through this at my school. Like, this is my daily life. I shouldn't have to feel like that. And I feel scared to even go back. Like. Amanda, this is the 22nd school shooting in the United States just this year. That's right, and the third just for this week alone. So in Santa Fe, we have a suspect in custody, a 17-year-old boy who apparently burst into art class and yelled surprise before he opened fire. It's scary stuff, isn't it? And I guess the difference with the usual serial killers we cover, and 
is a, is a shooting like this considered a serial killer or is it just a mass murder? It's a mass murder. So these are very, very different sorts of crimes. Okay. Is motivation the same or, you know, is, is their thought process the same, just wanting death, or does a serial killer take more joy because it's over a prolonged period of time? It's very different in that um, usually a mass murder is often to do with rage and power and control about, you know, an instant lot of fear for the victims, whereas a serial killer takes his time and there's a lot of fantasy involved. So, um, you you know, though even with this case, there's a little bit of indication on his um, social sites that he had a T-shirt that said Born to Kill and things like that. Um, This, so far, we don't have a motive well, it'll be interesting to see what his motive was for this. Yeah, and because we actually have him in custody, we will be able to find these details out. Um, he apparently did want to commit suicide, but chickened out. Right. It's an interesting turn of events, and, and maybe it hasn't been that long in the planning. Yeah, it seems to be that way. This seems to be a bit explosive rather than a carefully planned one like the Columbine cases. Well, the president has come out and tweeted, we grieve for the terrible loss of life and send our support and love to everyone affected by this horrible attack in Texas. To the students, families, teachers and personnel at Santa Fe High School, we are with you in this tragic hour and we will be with you forever. Okay, let's move on. And police have started digging at a Michigan farm searching for seven missing girls in what's being described as a serial killer's burial site. CBS has more details. Using excavators, warned police and FBI officials are combing through this thick wooded area in Macomb Township, about 30 miles north of Detroit, looking for the body of 12-year-old Kimberly King, who was last seen in September of 1979. Warren Police Commissioner Bill Dwyer spoke to our CBS affiliate, WWJ. We have probable cause to believe that this is a grave site, uh, that Kimberly King and other young females who were murdered are, are buried here. Officials say the site could contain the remains of up to half a dozen missing young girls, which are part of cold cases that go back 40 years. Police say after months of conversations with suspected serial killer Arthur Ream, he led them to this site. Ream is in prison for the murder of 13-year-old Cindy Zarzicki, who disappeared in 1986. In 2008, it was Ream who led authorities to her remains, which were discovered in the same area. Recovering efforts continue and the search could last two to four days. And um, what we're trying to do is bring closure to the families of the victims. Okay, so Amanda, correct me if I'm wrong, but this guy has admitted to one murder, took them to the body, but has not admitted to all the other people that they're looking for. That's right. And so it's like with other cases like the Golden State Killer that we look at similar cases. So we're looking at um, a couple of girls like Kimberly King, as the news article said. We're looking at Kaylee Brownlee, Kim Larrow and Nadine O'Dell, which all are similar age girls who disappeared around a similar time at a similar area. So um, there's a whole lot of geographical profiling that can go on that killers often take their time in the areas that they know and all these girls disappeared around the same time when he was out of prison because he's been in and out of prison a few times Mm -hmm. um, mostly to do with sexual assaults of young girls if he's admitted to one why wouldn't he admit to the others you never do no serial killer ever does they will give is that right i mean there are a few obviously and we talked about david bernie last week who who went yep i've Mm -hmm. done him um however even if even that case there's a some evidence that suggests there was others. But killers will give up what they've been caught at. Right. And that's, a, it's, it's, that's the power play. That's mm-hmm. where they go to say, well, you caught me. Like Fred West in England, which we will do one day, I promise, because it's, it's, it's one of the cases that fascinates me the most. Okay. Um, when they found one of his victims, he says, yeah, okay, well, you got me for that case. And then the police said, well, it's funny, we found three leg bones. And that's just one of those things that just gets me every single time I, I read the case. So when they find one body, they go, okay, yeah, you got me for that one body. Mm-hmm. So it's until they find that third leg bone, that's when they give up the next prize. Right. So it's, it's about give and take. It's about the power and control. When he knows something they don't, he has the control. Well, obviously, this case is unfolding as we speak and mm-hmm. as we um, go to record. I went to say go to live to go. air, but we're not live <laughs> we're to not. air. Um, and we will follow this as it as it progresses throughout the weeks. 
Moving on, and a mother and school teacher, Marinda Stein, has pled guilty for her role in a crime spree known as the Krutestorp murders in Johannesburg. Tell us more about this case, Amanda. So this, um, the, the purist out there who know serial killers per se will know that this isn't a true serial killer case. Now, this is a group of, of people. Hang on, weren't 11 people murdered? Yes. So but... why is it, what, what makes a serial killer? Okay, a serial killer doesn't do it for profit, and these people did. So, okay. so this is a group of five people. So it was her, her son, her teenage daughter and a couple of friends decided to take in um, welfare recipients and murder them, including one of the gang people. Okay, so they were killing welfare recipients and taking the checks. Yes, yes, okay. including um, they killed one of the perpetrator's wives in a car accident and collected the life insurance. So this is all still going to, to court. Three of them have pled guilty mm-hmm. so there's three more cases to come up but um yeah so so the mum she's she's gone for 11 cases she she denied the cases and then all of a sudden her um team basically said to her look uh, your son's gone to jail your mate's gone to jail just give it up mate <laughs> <laughs> basically and she said oh okay and so she went in front of the judge and said i, I plead guilty and he said do you realize what that means and she goes yeah yeah he goes okay well i'm sentencing you to 11 life sentences <laughs> it was like that jovial it was actually quite well, shocking something that shocked me and, and the photo that appeared from the courtroom in various news sources she looked happy you know I think you it's relief right do yeah. you think that happens where they've, they've done this bad thing and there's almost a sense of relief when that comes out. I think in some cases, I mean, it, it doesn't happen all that often, but, um, I mean, she, she was done and she knew, like, when her, her mate was done, her son was done, you know, her, her daughter's about to face trial in a couple of months. You know, they basically had her and this just sort of saves South African courts you know, millions of dollars. But it's, it's about that she just sort of went, okay, yeah, I did it. So it's it's the, these are the moments that shock me the most. You know, we expect them to fight. They've fought to to hide themselves away from from officials for so long. For them to finally sort of give up the fight, I'm quite shocked by that. You know, you've mm. fought all this time to to hide your crimes. Why all of a sudden, when you're cornered, you don't come out fighting? I guess I'm still intrigued by the part that. Killing eleven people isn't a serial killer, <laughs> but but it's interesting. How how do you get a whole family involved with this? You know, like you, it comes back to that thing with David Burney we spoke about last week. Where how do you say to people in your life? It, I, I guess I think it's one thing to have this thought: I'm going to kill someone, or I'm going to kill someone for their money. But then to get other people involved, you know, how do you get your son, your daughter involved? You know, like it's it's it. it I've got to be honest; it blows my mind that not only do you think I'm going to tell other people, but those other people come along for the ride. Exactly. I mean, it's it is quite shocking because we don't do this sort of thought process. It's about trust. I mean, it comes down mm. to trust. I mean. I wouldn't trust you if I was going to murder someone. I don't think you'd be able to keep a secret. And I don't plan on killing anyone. Surely I'd be your um, go-to person no, if you were going to bury a so. body. I, I, I don't think so. And I think, no. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know whether to be oh, insulted God. or not. Oh, we're going to get hate mail for this one. <laughs> but, but I think that's what makes us good people. Yeah. Is because that I agree we, with that. Is that we don't go there. But there is a lot of people out there who, I mean, this is how they often get caught at the same time. You know, as soon as, as as soon as some killers get caught, especially when they're a tandem killer, which is something that that will go into another time, is that um, one the the weaker person instantly goes, oh, it was him, and that's right. what happens. That they get caught for one, and they go, oh yeah, but I was only just sort of an, an accomplice. I'm not the ringleader. And that's what happens often. I mean, tandem killers are a, a whole nother genre, which we'll go into. I'm sure. Well, we've got. Plenty of years ahead of us <laughs> because Hopefully. we'll keep doing it whether people are listening or not. But um, let's go to Canada. And Toronto police say they've collected more than 1,800 pieces of evidence from the apartment of alleged serial killer Bruce MacArthur. More from Global News. 
It was just after 9 o'clock last Saturday night when for the first time in nearly four months, visitors were allowed to enter Suite 1915 at 95 Thorncliffe Park Drive. A half a dozen people moving furniture and other personal belongings out of the apartment where accused serial killer Bruce MacArthur lived. Certainly from our perspective between the apartment, vehicles associated to Mr. MacArthur, as well as other crime scenes, this has been the largest forensic examination in Toronto Police history. Police now confirm the forensic examination of the apartment has has been completed and the unit has been released back to the property managers. Throughout the course of the search of that place, they have uh, seized over 1,800 exhibits. Uh, the forensic investigators have taken more than 18,000 pictures uh, of the apartment and its contents. It was on January 18th when police first entered MacArthur's apartment. After sources tell Global News, undercover officers observed a young man going in. Fearing for his safety, they kicked down his door and found the man, a supposed date, tied up but unharmed. The 66-year-old landscaper was originally charged with two counts of first-degree murder, but since then, an additional six counts have been added after the dismembered human remains of seven men were allegedly found in large planters at this Leaside property, where he used to keep his landscaping equipment. The remains of one of the alleged victims has yet to be found. So, Amanda, this was the case we were talking about last week with the guy putting body parts in pot plants. Yes. Yes, so we've gone into his house now and, um, I mean, 1,800 pieces of evidence doesn't mean it's actually going to be, you know, brought to trial as part of, of, of that. I mean, 1,800 pieces is amazing. It's more about looking for fibres, looking for hairs, looking of, for evidence that puts these people into his home and that's what they're searching for. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of evidence that they've taken, but it, it will be interesting to see what th that they were looking for. So there were 1,800 pieces of evidence taken yes. and 18,000 photos. Yes. So to make sure that the evidence that they find is shown in the um, the journey of evidence. So to make sure that they picked up that piece of information or that you know that photograph mm -hmm. from the floor that you know this sock was picked up from this area of the home and everything so it sort of documents so the 18,000 photos is about the documentation of the evidence and and didn't they start from the door because they didn't want to contaminate so they started from the door and worked their way through the apartment yes so it's it's not just okay well you go to that room you go to that room they did it inch by inch literally combing through the carpet so <laughs> this guy still has due process, of course, but it's pretty damning that they found a potential victim in his apartment. Well, that's the rumours. So we don't have official sources, but there has been people that were at, at the scene at the time when he was arrested in January saying that a man was tied down in his, in his apartment. So mm. what happens from there? We'll see if that comes into the evidence because sometimes it is the victims who survive that brings the case to, to a conclusion, which is what we expect. Well, that ties into our case of the week in yes, Ivan Malak, Australia's <laughs> worst uh, serial killer. Um, and we'll have that, a little bit more on that later. But let's move on to the Golden State Killer, a huge case that's currently taking place in the United States of America. And there have been some um, movements, some updated information since we last recorded. Let's go to CBS News for more. This morning, a wave of new charges piling up against Joseph D'Angelo, the suspected serial killer accused of terrorizing California in the 70s and 80s. The Santa Barbara District Attorney slapping the 72-year-old former police officer with four additional counts of murder. Violent cold cases never grow cold for victims or their loved ones. The new charges stemming from two brutal cold cases, including the 1979 murders of Dr. Robert Offerman and Deborah Alexandria Manning. William and Joan Oakley were supposed to play tennis with the pair the next morning. Instead, they say they discovered their friends' bodies inside their condo. I still, if I ever see a, a light on on a porch and it's in the morning, I always think of Bob and, you know, it bothers me. I, I, it brings back a lot of memories. Authorities also charging D'Angelo with the 1981 double murder of Gregory Sanchez and his girlfriend Sherry Domingo. 
And now, law enforcement agencies across the state are digging deep into their files, reportedly looking into whether D'Angelo could be linked to other crimes, like the Cordova cat burglar attacks in the early 70s near eastern Sacramento. Jeez, Amanda, there could be a range of um, potential murders that could be solved through this one man. Where do, you, where do you see it going and what do you make of all this? I mean, it's about um, dotting your I's and crossing our T's now. So it's about seeing what other cases are out there because when you start to link cases together, um, you know, because we all don't want to think that there's, you know, these thousands of serial killers out there and, and news last week said that there literally is thousands of serial killers out there. So when we come... I'll sleep we well c- tonight. <laughs> When we come across a suspect and we can link cases to him, like what's happened with D'Angelo allegedly, um, other police services that haven't been linked into the original investigation start opening their books to say, well, hang on a sec, we have these cases that were unsolved. Is it because it's linked to this one case? And like, you know, in the news here in Sydney, you know, just, just... I think it was last weekend, we have opened 500 cold cases to actually go through them again. And is there links and all of that? So with the Golden State case, though, you know, they're sort of looking at, you know, uh, the East Area Rapist and the original Night Stalker cases and all of that. Other police services are opening their books to say, well, hang on a sec, maybe he did reach out just that slightly further geographically, as, as I was talking before about geographical profiling, and seeing if maybe he did spread his wings a bit and kill people in other areas. And we touched on this last week, but just like the front page of the Daily Telegraph here in Sydney, as you alluded to, um, with the 500 cases, new technology, DNA technology, is changing the ability of police services to go back and look at these cold cases and actually come up with results. Absolutely. I mean, that's how we caught the BTK. That's how we caught the Green River Killer. Sorry, BTK? BTK. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Please, guys, please be gentle to Robert. He's he's new to this world. So the BTK um, is bind, torture and kill. So he was one of the longest um, unsolved cases that the US had besides Zodiac and a couple of other cases that we won't go into now. And and Um, look, I know I'm not an expert here, but I see myself as an entry point. Absolutely. There are people like me listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. who don't know what a BTK is. And, you know, it is important to know that. And I'm sorry to people who were offended by my lack of knowledge. Yeah, so BTK was found um, through the sourcing of a um, a floppy disk that he sent to police because he asked police if... They could trace his floppy. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. that was horrible. If they could trace his floppy disk, and the police told him, "No, we can't." So you can send us a floppy disk of evidence, and he didn't. So they instantly were able to trace it to a local church, who said, "Oh yes, we gave that floppy disk to Dennis Rader, and he was arrested the following day, almost." But um, the Green River Killer too okay. was caught because of a piece of chewing gum that they found at one of the scenes that they sat on for 20 years until DNA evidence had. Um, advanced enough that we could actually test it and we're able to get Gary Ridgway. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. Now moving on and um, there has been a death in the serial killer world, a man who brought a lot of death to a lot of other people. Dennis Nielsen has died in prison. Yes, yeah, 72-year-old Nielsen died um, just this week. He was responsible for about 12 to 15 killings in the UK. Now, he was actually caught because he was trying to flush body parts down the toilet and a plumber was called to the apartment building where he was doing this and he actually spotted what he believed was flesh and so he told the superintendent at the building that he'll be back the next day, rushed off, told his his boss, I found body parts, what do we do? And so the police were called in and he was arrested the following day. What a thing to be confronted with. Um, this was in the 80s, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it started in, in, in the late 70s and he was um, captured in about 1983. A very well-known case in the UK, wasn't it? It is. It's, it's one of those cases that a lot of people that, that I know actually started off with because this is, you know, he appeared to be this quite normal, quote-unquote, guy. Um, but he, like Dharma, he was after... Um, that companionship and so he would bring men back to his ho- his apartment and from there he would rape them and often kill them in in, in the building uh, and there w- and, and that was the point wasn't it that um, the people he killed were gay yes um, was there any link to him wanting not to admit 
his own sexual preferences as part of this? No, unlike killers like um, John Wayne Gacy, he he was actually openly gay. Right. So, um, I mean, being openly gay today means something very different to, than the it 80s, did of back in the 80s, of course. But um, it wasn't something that he hid, but it wasn't something that he also publicised. So it was, it was a, more about that companionship and he was so deathly shy that um, it, it's quite surprising that he got as, you know, as like, 15 victims like he did. It's actually quite surprising. Well, if you want more information on him, go to monsterswhomurder.com because Amanda has done a full bio. Um, We updated, we did two stories on the day he died. We did the breaking news and then Amanda did her piece from information she has gathered throughout the years and it was actually quite a fascinating read. So I I really suggest you go and have a look at that. Um, But Amanda, let's move on to the biggest, biggest story of the week. Uh, and that's the royal wedding. While everyone else is talking about her dress and um, and the the n- upcoming nuptials, the biggest story for us, and unbelievably, Meghan Markle made it onto the Monsters Who Murder website because there's been a link to her and Jack the Ripper. Oh, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> and those that know this story know how horrible it is. So, um, the great grandnephew or something of H.H. Holmes, who is a Chicago ripper from um, the late 19th century, who actually was in Chicago and built um, a hotel where he killed... What was that hotel called? The Hotel of Horrors or something like that? Well, we kind of call it that now. It's called the Murder Castle. Right. Okay. But um, it is the inspiration for things like American Horror Story Hotel and all of that. So, but H.H. Um, H. Holmes is a fascinating case, and we will do him very soon, I hope, because it's one of one of the cases that fascinates me. But um, his great nephew or something, um, he actually did a lot of research and tried to link um, Holmes to Jack the Ripper. Now he believes, and, and this guy who's speaking is Meghan Markle's eighth. Cousin, cousin as something? well, apparently. So, I mean, I don't know. I think if I looked up my family tree, I can probably link myself to about 15 other people. <laughs> you know, you know, I might be, you know, the cousin of Jeffrey Dahmer or something. I don't really know. I but, just... but his point was that H.H. Um, H. Holmes is Jack the Ripper and yes. therefore Meghan Markle being his relative and H.H. H. Holmes' relative is actually a relative of... Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and I mean, when I posted this article on the website, oh, I got you crazy. basically <laughs> called bullshit straight away. I did, I did. <laughs> Purely, I mean, I have been researching um, Jack the Ripper since about 1986, 87, and the centenary was in 1988, obviously. Um, so I've been researching Jack the Ripper for a very long time, and H.H. H. Holmes really never come onto my radar. And um, it seems to be that the only people who like to follow this sort of link are the Americans. And by all means, guys, if you want to take another serial killer, then that's what happens. But really, um, there's no evidence that Holmes was in England. Of course, people say, oh, it's a bit murky where he was during that time. But I think he was busy enough killing 200 people in Chicago that he really didn't have time to head over to Whitechapel. You you specifically said there. Um, I think you said to me that there was a point where he specifically wasn't in England when a couple of the Jack the Ripper murders happened. Well, I mean, they they happened over just a very short period of time. It's it's called the Autumn of Terror for a reason, and um, I mean. We have so many other suspects that are, are more valuable to research that I think that there's a lot of noise that's happening over Holmes purely because he is American. Right. And I think that that's where that link they comes They want a in. bit of ownership. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in a documentary many, many years ago called um, Jack the Ripper Prime Suspect, there's another plug, um, which actually looked at a killer that was ex- executed here in Australia um, called Frederick Deeming, who is also a worthy suspect to investigate. So, I mean... There's lots of countries that lay claim to Jack the Ripper and, and and we'll never really know. I mean, but I really don't think Holmes was in Whitechapel. Okay. He was he was doing very different sorts of killings and he was more about um, fraud and things like that. He was killing people for insurance money and things like that. Whereas in, in the Jack the Ripper slayings, we have a man who was, you know, inviscerating prostitutes. I mean, it's very, very different sort of crime. Didn't you just say that if you're killing for money, it's not a serial killer? 
when we were talking about the Johannesburg. Yes, but Holmes did 200 people that we can't sort of link every <laughs> single person. And, I mean, his, his, his hotel that he built had specific murder rooms. This was more about killing for fun as well as it was for profit. How was he found out? And, and how was he not found out sooner? Because there was a lot of transients because this was during the World Fair. Now, we had a World Fair here in Australia in 1988. Um, it's weird. A lot of things happened in 1988 that changed my life. Um, we'll and, 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 and there is a lot of people that were here. And, and these days it's a bit easier to track people through computer systems of flights and stuff like that. But back in Chicago in, 19, in 1888, it's a very different world. And I think the actual World Fair was 1889, but don't quote me on that. Um, so he sort of opened this hotel. And basically, if he found out that you had no relatives and no one knew where you actually were, well, then you were a prime ah. candidate. I see. That's how you get away with it. Well, back then, certainly. Well, that is the news of this week. In a moment, our big case file of the week. Ivan Malat, convicted of murdering seven backpackers in the Balangolo State Forest. But what if he didn't act alone? The exclusive new evidence that could change everything you thought you knew about Australia's most infamous serial killer. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions with Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, for our international listeners, Ivan Milat and the Backpacker Murders is a case that has gripped Australia. We are fascinated by this uh, chain of events. Amanda... Has there been a serial killer who has captured the imagination of this country like Ivan Milat? Absolutely not. It's actually quite surprising with all of the research I've done over the years and a lot of press and TV and stuff that I've done. This is the case that everyone wants to know about. And I find that fascinating. I mean, when we have things like the Snowtown case where we have bodies in barrels like the Jeffrey Dahmer case in the US, it's quite surprising that Ivan Milat still captures our terrifying nightmares as as it does well we have a lot to get through and we'll be going through some of Malat's letters in just a moment what you're about to hear is an actor reading out the letters as written although we've added a word here and there to help make sense of them all his penmanship is beautiful that's the thing i noticed and some of the words he uses impressive but let's be honest his sentence structure amanda is terrible as a writer, it can be quite painful. Um, <laughs> but as you said, there is words that he uses that um, are, are quite surprising. But I think that that comes from a lot of years of doing his own um, le- legal defences. And he right. needs to sort of go through and use the right terminology. And so he's actually increased his vocabulary, but his grammar, not so much. Yeah. Well, let me th- set things up by this one little bit that caught my eye and shows why you have such an unique insight into the man. I've seen thousands of words about what is in my mind, my thoughts, what I've done previously and do in the future. Amazing. You are very aware of a lot of the things, as you are one of the few who ask me about things since your first letter from you in late 90. So that was a letter written to you. You've been corresponding with Malat for decades now. Tell me about your relationship with him. Well, I mean, there's a lot of give and take with a lot of these serial killers that I do interview. Um, But the backpacker case is one of those ones that there is so many gaps in it that I'm fascinated to know more and I come with it without judgment. And I mean, there there is seven dead people, which is something that I never forget. But I'm trying to plot it all together and there is a lot that doesn't make sense and there's a lot that I need to find answers for. And... As, I, as I've said in many interviews over the years, 
I've been taught to go to the source. So you ask a killer, how did you get arrested? And he even can't answer where that final link was. So a lot of the discussions I have with Ivan Malat is about where is point A and point B connected because I can't see it. We're about to go through a lot of um, points he makes about the case and why he says it was a flawed case. Um, Do you believe at the time we were desperate to find the killer and that possibly we rushed in and didn't get the right man or certainly didn't get the man and certainly didn't get the person who was the only person involved in this because there's a whole thing where we're about to go down the rabbit hole of was there another person involved? Most people that followed the case as closely as I did and there would be a few out there realise that the official story is not the full story and that's where we need to go. There is a full story here and I need to find it because there's pieces in this that don't make sense. Okay, well, Malat says he has an alibi. Let's have a listen to what he says. And the fact that I have an alibi for the two murders, Hapshide and Neugebora, I was with my mother that day. My father died and I had taken her to the cemetery. Amanda, if that's true, does that show a massive flaw in the case? When I was told this, it was like a punch to the guts. I mean, this is something that never come up in trial that I saw. I mean, obviously, um, Ivan Milat has sent me transcripts and details like that. But this is something that never come out in the press. And why is that? If he has a alibi, how did the case continue? And it shocks me because, I, I'm, you know, there's innocence and guilt and that's a whole other story that we're not going to write this second. But if, if they're charging a man with just these two killings, regardless of the other five, we're charging a man with two killings and he has an alibi... How the hell is he standing in front of a judge? It's fascinating, isn't it? He, In the letters he sent to you, he seems adamant there are holes in the prosecution's case. Let's take a listen. The prosecution said that I murdered the seven people on these days. That seemed based on the last reported sightings of the persons, but there is evidence that they were seen further on elsewhere. The prosecution suggests no, they are mistaken, or they could have been seen. It does not matter. As their remains were found in the forest, there is no scientific way to determine when they died. So they may have been killed either on this day or a week later. Is there reasonable doubt? I mean, if I say yes, it means that our criminal justice system is extremely flawed. It's a big can of worms to open. And I wonder, I mean, the hate mail I'm going to get for this is incredible. Um, But I can't link this case completely. There is so many gaps in the story that is in the prosecution's story that it doesn't make sense to me. And if someone has an alibi for two of the case and they go, oh, well, just because you weren't there for those ones doesn't mean you didn't do the other five. I mean, that's not not (laughs) how court works. And so there's a lot of information and, you know, what I've given you today for these transcriptions is basically a page out of thousands of pages that I have. So I've really carefully selected these How many letters have you had from him, do you think? I have no idea. 100, 200, 300. I have no idea. Really, there is a lot. There is a gap in time because I did stop writing to a lot of killers for a long time after David Burney took his own life. Um, but and there is a whole lot of boxes I can't find of, of letters, but what I have with me right now is probably 150 just in front of me right now. Weirdly, one of Malat's brothers renovated um, my aunt's house. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what he did. He was like a plaster or something like that, but it was really weird being that one degree away from a killer, you know what I mean? It was, um, yeah, very, very bizarre, but to have that in... In your life, and I, I, I said to my mum today, "Did Tanya not think twice about getting this guy?" And mum was like, "Well, he wasn't the killer." <laughs> well, I mean, that's a big thing. There's a lot of cases, and and the Golden State Killer is one recently that um, his ex fiancee, whose name was Bonnie, and that was a name that was used in a lot of the rapes, 
um, people are hounding her. And really, regardless of his reason for killing and raping these people, it's not her fault. So we can't blame the family of, 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 these, of these people because they're okay and we can't sort of tar them with the same brush. Mm. I mean, I, I wrote a whole book called A Killer in the Family. It's about how these families cope with knowing that someone in, in their family does such heinous things. Tell me how the victims were killed. Well, there was all different ways and that's what shocks me about this case when they arrest and charge one person with the killings. Now, some of these victims were stabbed in the back. So, and when we think about stabbing in the back, most of us see that sort of, you know, Hollywood version of stabbing towards a kidney. Now, these people were actually stabbed in the spine, which mm. is very, very different. It, it renders someone incapable of running away. So, they instantly become... Um, paraplegic and, and there's nothing much that they can do. And that's horrific. Now, other victims were shot. Now, anyone who has studied serial killers over the, over the years will know that a serial killer usually has a signature or an MO where they decide that that's their way of killing. So, you know, we have some that stab, we have some that shoot, um, which are actually quite rare. We have some that strangle and all of this sort of stuff. But we don't have killers that come across and do two ways of killing so we don't have someone who shoots one victim and stabs another one so that's another part of this case that is perplexing when they say oh no it's one person i cannot see a serial killer chasing two people through the bush with a knife in one hand and a gun in the other well the reason i asked you that question is because Milat seems to take issue with some of the evidence in a letter to you let's have a listen to that the evidence was exaggerated beyond belief the bowie knife found in my work bag I used at work. The judge said the evidence was six of the victims were stabbed, knifed for stabbed in a manner to cause paralysis to the victims. Walters had over a dozen stab wounds. Then he mentioned that Walters was only body intact, complete, and the evidence is that the Bowie knife never matched Walters' wounds. Okay, I'm going to ask you this. Even if he's right about the evidence, we actually have a witness who testified that he escaped from a lap. Tell me about Paul Onions. Okay, now this is, this is the victim. As I said, it's often the victim that escapes that actually um, gets these people arrested. So Paul Onions was an English guy who had come out to Australia and he was hitchhiking. He got picked up at Kasula, um, which is a local area to, to where we are now. Um, he was picked up as, and asked the guy who picked him up, whose name was Bill, um, was the name that was used, and asked him to take him down south towards Melbourne. Now, Onions um, was sort of dozing off, chatting, all this sort of stuff, when Bill, the, the driver, pulled over to the side of the road and said, this is a robbery, I'm going to tie you up. He and actually now, said that? He actually said that. So Onions actually got out and just ran onto the road. Now, this is a freeway between two um, major cities in Australia. So, so presumably that's on the freeway? Were they doing 110 or...? Yeah, the few people that were driving along there at at the time, it was a public holiday in Australia. And and for our American listeners, one hundred and ten that's kilometres an hour, which would be I guess fifty five, no, yeah, 60, sixty miles yeah, an hour. I'd say sixty miles an hour. So he ran onto the road and started to zigzag. Now that's something that I have actually kept with me. That that's a survival technique. Hmm. If you zigzag, someone can't shoot at you because you're actually you know sort of going in in this random direction. Now, Paul Onions um, stopped a van, which was driven by a mum who picked him up, who had children in the car and other people in the car. They were all hysterical. By the time this guy said, take, take me to the police station, I was just, you know, attacked. Um, now, this is the only case that we sort of have a witness to. Um, now, Onions has come forward and said that the back of the car that had picked him up, which was the Toyota, had a spare tyre on the back, which is something he'd never seen before because apparently that doesn't happen in England. Um, Ivan Malat shows that there wasn't a tyre on the back of his car at the time, so that's questionable. Okay. And he also, there's a whole sort of story about um, the Merv Hughes facial hair that, um, you know, that the, the guy who picked up Paul Onions had the same mo as Merv Hughes, which is an Australian cricketer. Now, Ivan Malat had photos to prove that he didn't have a moustache at the time. Now, the most photos that are shown... That's weird because every photo we've ever seen of Malat, he has that Merv Hughes 
moustache. Now, when you ask Ivan Milat about that, Mo, he says, I grow that every time I feel that I'm losing more hair. (laughs) Which is a random thing, but these are the sorts of questions I ask killers. I say, well, let's talk the, about the moustache. This and he is goes, why we have you. And, and he goes, well, at the time I didn't have one because I felt pretty good about my hair. <laughs> he grows a moustache when he has no hair. Okay. So when's yours coming, Rob? Very soon. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Amanda. Look, um, I'm this sorry, is where I didn't mean that. That's all right. This is where things get really interesting. Malat talks about the fact none of the evidence specifically incriminates him as the murderer only that he was there. So, the jury are not required to determine whether I alone or with another or other in each of the murders. As no evidence given in the trial, no police, no witnesses to give evidence of I alone or I have an accomplice slash accomplices, it would have been difficult to decide that. There was DNA evidence from the two victims. The Crown said it was contaminated, either when samples taken or in the transport of samples or in the test laboratory. He said probably in the laboratory. Nothing there to implicate the accused. The other DNA evidence, found in a victim's hand, tested in the UK, not mine, but it was a male person, not from any Malat person. The judge tells the jury, means only that I never murdered her, but does not mean I was not there. I could have been attacking slash murdering someone else, or, I like this part, He was performing some other function in that criminal enterprise. What function? Making a cuppa? Here I was, classed as a depraved killer and making a cuppa when apparently there was rape, murder, etc. going on. I don't mean to laugh about the making a cuppa and that was read out as written. Even the, I like this part, Amanda... um, I find it, there's so much to go through here. I find it interesting how he refers to himself as the accused. But do you think there was a second person involved with these murders? Even before Ivan Milat was arrested, I've always believed that this was at least two killers. There is no way that people can be stabbed and shot and it be one killer. As I said, can you imagine a killer walking around like Ted Bundy or someone with a knife in one hand and a gun in the other? It's not possible especially when you have two victims. There is no possible way. Now, what you miss there, Rob, is that Ivan Milat actually mentions rape. Right. That's something that isn't... Yes, he does. It's something that isn't sort of discussed in this case because there's no proof, and yet he's talking about rape. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, but is he speaking hypothetically or is he... Well, you've got to read it. You've got you to think, it's, is he saying that he's there watching someone rape someone or is he saying hypothetically, you know, is this what was going on? This has been an interesting thing between you and I going through the letters because you're seeing stuff that I'm, I am missing. Um, you know, we, we've been discussing back and forth uh, during the week. We've been going through, email, we've been emailing each other about where we're going with certain things regarding this podcast and there's elements you see that he's sort of trying to tell you that isn't obvious, but it's there when you read between the lines. Absolutely. I mean, I'm trying to pull this case apart because it does not make sense. I mean, I have looked at hundreds, thousands of cases over the years, and this case with Ivan Milat as the killer does not make sense. And when he's talking about that, the judge says, oh, well... If he wasn't killing him, he was making a cuppa and watching the other guy do it. So we have to call him guilty. It doesn't make sense. Do you think if the Australian public knew basically there was this belief that there was a second person, the public would want that followed up? I mean, everyone who sort of follows the case believes in the subscription that it's not just one one killer. Um, is but it that Ivan means Lewis? there's another killer out there. And actually, in fact, back in 2015, one of the jurors who convicted Milat told the Daily Telegraph that Milat didn't act alone. He said he had no doubts about Milat's guilt, but added, I would have said there was a very strong possibility that someone else was involved. Exactly. And and what we've sort of skipped over here is, is the DNA evidence suggests that whoever killed the two English girls, which were the last victims, they were victims six and seven, it didn't match any Malat. Well, he so, made that point in the letter. Exactly. He makes the point, so, and if we're to believe what he's saying in the letters, 
there is no DNA evidence that puts him in that situation. Exactly. And it's like, hello, why is why aren't people screaming from the rooftops? We've got, we have we, a victim with a, who has grabbed her killer's hair and ripped it out of his head or hers, and we have tested that, and it doesn't come back as Ivan Milat. We are we've been talking about the Golden State Killer and and how DNA evidence and the, and the new evidence is going back and convicting these people, and yet we've got a situation here where DNA evidence isn't able to convict someone because it isn't strong enough or, in the words of the judge, is contaminated, whether in the lab or wherever. So surely there is something fundamentally wrong that there are more questions than there are answers about whether it was just Malat. If they can't... uh, Sorry, it it just actually blows my mind. And and this is brand new to me. (laughs) This is opening a whole world to me because I've always known Ivan Malat is the backpacker killer. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and having looking at this, listening to what he's saying in his letters, and and even just looking uh, at, the, at at the articles Be- that come up about because the you've got juror. to remember, Rob. Here, we're not talking about what he's saying in his letters. We're saying what he is reading from the transcripts. This is what is yeah. in the court case that the judge is saying. Good point. Oh, by the way, yes, that might be contaminated DNA, and it doesn't match any person yeah. from Malat's family. So. So uh, as to you, me, uh, that is a, the, the, you a just, mistrial. You just raised, yeah, you just raised a ra- really good point uh, a moment ago, where you said the victim who grabbed a clump, was it hair? Yeah. You said grabbed a clump of hair, had it in her dead, cold hands mm-hmm. when she was partially buried, had that clump of hair in her hands, and that's not Ivan Milat. Yes. That's a fundamental problem to me. Yep, there's swear words I'd like to use here. It makes <laughs> it makes no sense to me that the case went any further than the DNA evidence because it's not like that's a transference. So um, those that don't understand, you can – like um, some killers have been convicted because there's been a transference of evidence. So um, there is people like Stephen Bradley who – killed Graham Thorne here in Sydney. Now, the reason that he was um, convicted of that crime is because that his victim, Graham Thorne, had dog hair on him, which was a transference from Stephen Bradley to Graham Thorne. In this case, this is a clump of hair grabbed into a woman's hand, um, Joanne Walters, as she was dying, as she was being murdered. She is holding her killer's hair. What do you make of this? In twenty in two thousand and five, Malat's former lawyer John Marsden, who he fired, mm-hmm. made a deathbed statement saying Malat's sister Shirley had assisted him. That's an allegation, never proven. What do you make of it? And it doesn't fit what we were just talking about rape. I've got to say, if there was rape going on, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, when that come forward, um, because when it when this news originally come out, it said that um, a a sibling of Ivan Milat has been a- accused by John Marsden, who was who was his lawyer for a week. So when that come forward, I thought, okay, saying one of the brothers, which have have come up multiple times in the case. So when someone released it saying it was um, his sister Shirley, I was personally I was shocked knowing what I knew about the case. Now Shirley lived with Ivan when he was arrested. That perplexes me that that's where he went with that. Now Ivan Milat denies ever saying anything like that to Marsden and Ivan found out very, very quickly that um, John Marsden was friends with some of the investigators so he didn't trust him very quickly. So there is no way in God's earth that he would have told his lawyer at the time that he sacked a week later um, all this story and and, and accused his sister. It's mm. just a whole lot of hogwash. Malat hasn't given up, has he? No. And when we talk about things like DNA, when people are going to prison and death row and being executed for DNA, when the only DNA evidence we have in this case suggests it's someone else, you know, what does that say? Malat has shown in the past he'll go to any length to get people to listen to him. Um, There was an incident a few years ago. Here's how he describes how far he'll go. The High Court of Australia decided to ignore my correspondence. Many letters I sent, but only blank silence from them. 
in late January 2009, I took off one of my fingers, posted it to the Chief Justice of the High Court to draw attention to my issue. It did. Amanda, his new letters to you seem to indicate he's willing to do something drastic like that again. Well, I mean, he's been in prison since the mid-90s and nothing has gone anywhere further. And when we talk about, you know, DNA doesn't match, he has alibis for two of the killings, you know, I think I'd probably send more than a pinky to the Chief Justice. Well, he, in the letters to you, he does talk about the fact that um, he was disappointed with the response of the Commissioner um, and and the Department and, you know, he, he sent the pinky to get their attention, which it did, and that he, in his new correspondence, he's perplexed at getting a lack of attention considering his background and his history, which is, that's the element that seems to indicate He's starting to think he needs to do something drastic to get people to reassess his case. Yeah, I mean, last time when he did this, it actually had some effect and they actually looked at his his proposals and his um, defence of what he believed was a poor criminal justice system at work. And so now we're doing the same thing again and he's thinking that, well, he has ten fingers, well, he has nine, um, and what does he need to do now to make them listen again? Because, um, you know, he, he actually sends me excerpts and, and examples from his appeals and he sends them hundreds of pages and they meet in court for five seconds and go, yeah, we don't care what you say, go away. <laughs> Literally, that's what happens. He says it becomes a media circus, um, but nothing is being done and no one is addressing the details that he is bringing up. Now... We're told in this country, Ivan Milat is the backpacker killer. But then when we say, well, he has an alibi for the Habsheet and Neugebauer case, the DNA doesn't match him for the Walters and Clark case. Well, that takes out four out of the seven. There's no evidence to suggest anyone was at the other three. So why isn't anyone looking at this? Now, I'm not defending a serial killer. But um, but I've been brought to, up to question. Do you believe he was involved? Process. Well, I said four cases. It looks like he wasn't. So was he responsible for the other three? Now, if 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 we look at the Paul Onions case in isolation, Paul Onions was captured by one person. He says that the man has a moustache. Ivan Milat didn't have one at the time. Do they we have s- proof of that or is it just yes, what he his, says? Well, his wife come forward and there was f- photographs proven around the same time. Right. With okay. him without, without a moat. To me, that's pretty good. No, that's dry. pretty good proof. Yep. Um, there's also a photo of Ivan Milat without a moustache standing beside the same car that was apparently used in the Paul Onions case that doesn't have a tire on the back and he had no mo. So is it someone who looked like Ivan? Is it someone With from the same Ivan's car family? Though? It was a Toyota four wheel drive. It's not like we're talking sort of like a Lamborghini <laughs> nineteen eighty seven vintage Yeah, I, and, and look the reason I'm challenging you on this oh, is because it's it's hard to think that we may have the wrong person or that we may have Part of the story. Part, part of the story and, and someone who was involved but not the only person involved. And that is a really scary thought. Um, what? Well, can I ask you, what's the scary part that you think there's a killer out there or that you can go to jail and be innocent? I, I think both. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying Ivan's innocent. That's a whole other argument and we might end up going there. I don't know. But... Um, Regardless, anyone who sees a case where there is two different sorts of MO um, suggests that there's two killers. And to say that, you know, in each case there was one stabbed, one shot, that's the first part of this story, that unless you have the full case, how can you take any case to court? Well, it's fascinating. And look, before we wrap up, there's just one thought from Milat I want to leave you with. Have a listen to this. Though I have never acknowledged any parts in the deaths of these unfortunates whose remains were found in Belangolo Forest, I am, of course, sorry for them, as I am for any other who have met an untimely end of their life. So many every day in this world. Accidents, murder by purpose, or nature do it. 
you know, if he was guilty, that would be an apology without admission. Yeah. So I thought that was an important part to share. It can go twofold, that that statement. And that's that's when we were talking earlier about me seeing beyond. You might have read that when yeah, yeah, and kept going. But it's me knowing what I know about... Oh, no, I, I think that's a really powerful statement. Yep. I, that stood okay. out to me when I went through the letters you sent me. And, and Amanda only sent me a portion, uh, a parts of letters that um, she's received. She went through and basically highlighted the bits she thought were relevant to this podcast. That was a standout moment for me. It is, you know, if you had, if you were guilty of this, that's your apology to the victims and their families mm-hmm. without that, admission. That's very, very rare. Well, it's an interesting case and there are a lot of unanswered questions, Amanda, but thank you once again for your time and your insight. I'm finding it fascinating, even though I'm new to all this. Thank you, Robert. Um, Who are we doing next week? Well, next week we're going to do a case where one of the killers threatened to kill me because I found him boring. Jeez. Okay. All right. Um, I look forward to finding out about that case next week when Monsters Who Murder continues. For more information on this episode, go to monsterswhomurder.com and you can find us on social media by searching MWM Confessions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.